0: Add my welcome to you all, my name is Greg Dernberger, I'm a senior pastor of Emmaus Road Church. And I invite you to turn in your Bibles or your electronic devices to Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter 3, second book of the Bible. <clears throat> Laurie and I were attending what had been advertised as an evening of storytelling, and the storyteller got the event started by inviting us, the audience, to stand and introduce ourselves to one another. And uh, his instruction included saying our name along with a word that started with the same letter that communicated something about us. So. Um, being the introvert that I am, and thinking hard thoughts about the friend who'd given us tickets, I uh, I walked over to some stranger and I said, hi, I'm Greg, the guitar player. <laughs> and uh, I mean, in the moment, it just seemed less lame than gregarious Greg or less pompous than Gregory the Great or something like that. But, but the, the point of doing it was some of us find it challenging to remember names. That would include me. And by simply adding something descriptive to our names serves the other as a mnemonic device. Someone is more likely to remember, oh yeah, you're Greg the guitar player, rather than just trying to remember Greg. And, and and this is significant because um, as Dale Carnegie of How to Win Friends and Influence People Fame so poignantly said, we can make people feel extremely important and valued by simply remembering their name. Our, our names distinguish us from other people. Our names become a part of who we are. They're more than just a label. Something of our identity is captured in that name. And if that's true for human beings, then what about God's name? If our names are important to us, communicate something about us, then what might God's name be? Mean? What significance does God's name communicate? And, and that is at the heart of Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, which we're going to give our attention to today. So I'm going to invite you, if you're able, please stand. It's an expression of honor of God's word, attentiveness to what he's going to say. And follow along. I'm going to read Exodus chapter 3, beginning with verse one And through verse 15. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law, Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning... Yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I'll turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. The Hivites and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me. And I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. And now verse 10. This is our text for today. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and there shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they asked me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Some degree, all of us standing here now in this place, we're on holy ground as well. Lord, you have breathed out words, you have opened your mouth and communicated yourself. This is a, an intimate moment when you would say, your name, and open a door for us to know you and relate to you. We thank you for that shield, that one who appeals to you, bore wounds so that we might have this moment of standing in your presence, hearing you, relating to you. We pray that the holiness of this opportunity would be brought to bear upon us by the working of your Holy Spirit, and we ask this for the glory of a great Savior, our great mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Exodus chapter 3 verses 1 through 9 represents a turning point in the book of Exodus. It's a It's a turning point in Moses' life. It's a turning point in the history of Israel. It is a turning point in God's salvation history. And it's because after 400 years of silence, God is speaking. God is revealing. God's communicating Himself. He unveils His nature. He discloses His heart. He tells of his plans. Just recognizing that reality alone should cause us to tremble. The revelation of God, the revelation of his sovereignty and his holiness and his tender-hearted mercy. That this is the it's the, the foundational building block upon which everything else is going to be constructed as, as we go along, discovering more, learning more about all that the Lord is, and it is on account of this revelation that Moses would never be the same. Israel would never be the same. And loved ones, God willing, we will never be the same. Now here, in Exodus chapter 3, verses 10 through 15, that that revelation, that communication, that disclosure reaches a climax. We are introduced to more of God in a more personal way. He tells us His name. When you want to know someone, you give them your name because the name is what opens the door to relationship. And when God gives His name, He does so To open the door that we might know Him and to remember Him and relate to Him in a more personal way. One Old Testament scholar writes, when the Bible speaks of the name of God, it is referring to the fullest extent of the knowledge of God that is available to human beings. Think about that. As we're meditating on this text, we are engaging with the fullest extent of the knowledge of God that is available to us. And that's because God's name, God's name represents all that God reveals to us about himself. And God is revealing his name for a reason. Namely, to forge a relationship with us to, and to to fortify our faith in Him. Imagine imagine it's narrate night. And uh, you are in God's MC. And God is introducing Himself. In order that we might be knit more closely to Him. And that our faith might be strengthened in Him. It's holy ground. Now... It's crucial that we remember what's going on here, the context. God has, God has sovereignly interrupted Moses' life. And God reveals himself to Moses as a holy God. He says, do not come near. I mean, that, that really means Moses' life is on the line. You cannot draw near to God unless he draws near to you or makes provision for it to happen. But he's also Israel's God. And his heart is tender towards them. He's tender towards their circumstances. He has seen their afflictions. Remember those verbs that are used. He has seen their affliction. He has heard their heart cry. He knows all that they've suffered. And now he has come down to deliver them. In other words, the hour of salvation has arrived. And and, you'd sort of expect, you'd anticipate... Moses to be pretty fired up about this. You know, whoa, you know, this, this is it. Stuff's going to happen now. The promise that God made to Abraham back in Genesis 15 to free his people from their affliction, that time has come. What could be more exciting? And then there's verse 10. God says, Come, Moses, I will send you. I'll send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You know, Moses, like, excuse me? Seriously? Say what? Hold on. Remember, Moses has been on the run from his past for 40 years. He has been living an anonymous life in backwater Midian, shepherding his father-in-law's sheep away from all the the politics going on in Egypt, away from Twitter and cable news, away from all this cultural drama. It's just quiet life. Now that peace is interrupted and it's because God is about to change history. And God's plan for changing history means that Moses will be no sideline spectator. In Exodus chapter 2, we suspected Moses had some sense, at least, of his purpose. I mean, his manhood alone probably said to him, I, I, you know, God means for me to be a deliverer. But now Moses Now Moses is discovering what his life purpose is all about. At 80. At 80 years of age. Now I get it. Now I see. God had created him. God had rescued him. God had shaped him, including those dark and maybe perceived wasted years. Prepared him uniquely and specifically for such a time and for such a task as this. He's no longer going to be shepherding sheep. He's going to be shepherding people. And keep in mind, <laughs> you know, this, is, this is significant. The people that he's going to be shepherding, they're not some, you know, well organized, well-oiled machine, you know, some geopolitical entity. The people he's going to lead are. A ragtag multitude of just beaten down, worn out, impoverished slaves. Not an army. They're really more like sheep. And God is calling Moses to lead these sheep against the world's greatest superpower. So it's no surprise that you know, Moses He's going to push back a little bit. He's not a, he's not a little resistant to God's call. He's questioning God's plan. He's raising objectives, uh, objections to, to God's wisdom. And we see two of the objections here. He, has, he raises several in the rest of this chapter, but, but there are two of them here in verses 10 through 15. And we're actually also going to see how God patiently... Responds to Moses' objections, and as God responds patiently in that process, we'll discover even more about who God is. So, Moses' first objection is expressed in the question, Who am I? Moses' immediate reaction to God's call is to, to kind of size himself up against the assignment, and, and he finds himself a little bit short. Like a lot short, verse 11, that Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? You see that? For Moses, there are, there are two insurmountable obstacles. One's Pharaoh, the most powerful man and the most powerful. Powerful nation on earth. And this is it's not the same Pharaoh as the one in Exodus chapters 1 and 2. You know, there, there's probably a pretty good chance that Moses actually knew the guy. You know, They may have grown up together in the Egyptian court. But more significantly and more likely, it's, it's just the thing that's overwhelming Moses is it's his past. It's his past that haunts him. God, have you, like, have you forgotten that I'm a fugitive from justice in Egypt? I'm a wanted man in Egypt. How do you expect me, of all people, to do this? I'm the last guy on earth for this job. But the second obstacle is Israel itself. Because the last time that Moses was with the Israelites, and he, he was soundly rejected. He'd been trying to be helpful. He'd sought to serve them as a deliverer, and instead he, he fled in panic that his own people would rat on him and turn him in. And so, why are they going to listen to me now, after 40 years, much less follow me anywhere? And God's answer to Moses' objections, his answer is brief and to the point. Verse 12, he said, this is God, but I will be with you. You see what what God doesn't say? He doesn't pump Moses up with this, hey man, it is your time. This is your moment. He doesn't walk Moses through some long list of all he's got going for him, you know, all of his assets. He doesn't draw attention to how, how these past 40 years have so distinctly prepared Moses for such a time and for such a task as this. He doesn't say, oh, but Moses, you are going to be so good at this. Moses, this is not too big for you. God does not minimize the hugeness of it all. God does nothing. He does absolutely nothing to draw Moses' focus on to himself. Rather, God draws attention to one simple reality. I will be with you. God takes Moses' eyes off of himself and points his eyes to a more powerful, a more awesome, a more towering reality. One which makes all other challenges and impossibilities pale. You see, the the issue at hand in this moment, in this decisive moment in salvation history... It it is not who Moses is. The issue is who God is. Loved ones, listen. The, the, The question is never ultimately who we are. It's always ultimately who God is. And listen, this is really, really important. From this point on, Exodus chapter 3, from this point on, this promise of God, this promise, I will be with you, the promise of God's presence and power, this is going to be the distinguishing mark and characteristic of the people of God. God's active presence, God's power, His dynamic, discernible power, this is the distinguishing mark of God's people. The active presence and power, the discernible presence and power of God is what is going to set the people of God apart from all other people. If you've ever been here for our stand-up meeting, which we have every Sunday morning at 9.30, get all the people that are going to be serving in ministry teams, stand up and Check in with each other, make sure that we're clear about what's going on, and um, usually that's pretty helpful. Um, week in and week out, we we pray for God to to fulfill the one promise, that one promise, and create that one reality that will distinguish us and what happens in this meeting from any other meeting, any other gathering, any other people. Namely, God's active, dynamic, discernible presence and power. Why? Why is that significant? It's because this promise, this phrase is what matters more than anything else. It is this promise. This phrase, or some form of this phrase, occurs over 100 times in the Old Testament. Over and over and over. When called to some challenging task, when confronted with some danger or threat, when confronted by some great evil, God's people, again and again, over and over, are emboldened and encouraged with these words, I will be with you. Now, if, of course, it's, you know, it's not just the words. It's who's speaking the words. I mean, this, this week, you know, if, you're, if your furnace fails to heat, you know, and goes down the 20s, or your, you know, your computer screen locks up or transmission in, on your vehicle falls off. <laughs> and I said to you, I said to you right now, hey, I will be with you. You should gain zero comfort at all from that promise. But when God, the creator and the sustainer of heaven and earth, promises to be with us, that changes everything. Nevertheless, in spite of God's promise, Moses still has some anxious misgivings. And so he says in verse 13, Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? Moses' first question was, Who am I? His second question is, Who are you? And it is a question that leads... This, This is one of the most holy and mysterious moments in all of Scripture. Namely... The communication of the very name of God. As Moses contemplates God's call, as he imagines himself coming to the Israelites, he anticipates their questions, and he wants to know what he should say. N- names in the ancient Near East carried significance because they Pointed to one's nature, or character. They weren't just a label. One's name represented one's reputation. I wasn't. I wasn't all that encouraged. This last week, when I Googled "brands you can trust," in the top ten. Brands that you can trust are Weight Watchers, Whole Foods, Facebook, <laughs> there's a laugh, TripAdvisor. How many times have we ended up at a restaurant that was just ah, because we found it on TripAdvisor? Harley Davidson, now that's a good one. Uh, uh, and, and Budweiser. <laughs> Wow. Um, Brands you can trust. These are the names you can rely on. I believe that what's underneath Moses' hypothetical situation, it's, it's not that these people were completely ignorant about who God is. God may have been a distant memory to them, but the Israelites did know his name. We know that because this name, it runs through the entire book of Genesis. uh, Rather, the relevant substance to this question is, after centuries, centuries of suffering, you can understand this, right? After centuries of suffering, after centuries of bondage, after centuries of oppression, are we talking about the same God that our ancestors knew? Is that who you're talking about? We get this, right? You've gone through some hard stuff. Suffering makes this happen to us. Does does he really remember us? Does he really care about all that we've gone through? And, and, And is he the one that sent you? So what's in God's name? And it is to this anticipated question, this very relevant question, that God so graciously discloses not only His name. He says His name, but He communicates the meaning of His name as well as the significance of the meaning of His name. And He does so in three parts. Part one. God answers this question immediately in a phrase for Moses, verse 14. God says to Moses, I am who I am. Well, that's not really a name. That's that's an assertion (laughs) that that sheds light on what's in God's name. I am who I am. Second part two, God answers the question for Israel and he Verse 14, and he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. That's that's just an abbreviated version of I am who I am. I think that basically means that, you know, Moses is showing, you need to show these people the significance of my name, not just for you, but for them also. And then part three. And this is where God finally actually provides his actual name. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord has sent me to you. That's the name. The proper name of God is... The Lord. That's his personal name. It's the special name of which God, it's the special name of God which he gives to his people that opens this door to relationship with him. And this name, the Lord, it's going to occur over 6,000 times in the Old Testament. How do you get Lord, L-O-R-D, from I am? Well, behind the word Lord are four letters. Y-H-W-H. That's the name. (laughs) And those four letters are derived... Those four letters, Y-H-W-H, are derived from the, the Hebrew verb, I am. So that, that's how it connects. That's, that, that's what helps us make sense of I am who I am with the Lord. But, but it's also important to understand how this happened. You see, over time, the Jews considered that name, Y-H-W-H, too sacred to even be vocalized. They, they, would, they would not say the name lest they risk breaking the third of the Ten Commandments. Do not take the name of the YHWH in vain. It's a, it's, it's to, it's a great sin to say God's name and, it, and just in a worthless way, just utter it out as an exclamation. That, it's, that's worthlessness attaching to God's name. And they were not going to do that. And so they wouldn't even dare to speak it. Instead, when they came to these letters, Y-H-W-H, the name, they would use a different word. Maybe you, have, you know that word or you've heard that word. It's the word Adonai. The word Adonai translated means Lord. And over time, this is really over centuries, over millennia later, we still use that traditional translation, Lord. We don't say the name. And so you see, in your English Old Testaments, every time you see that word Lord in all capital letters, its meaning is not merely, you know, like master, commander, governor, authority, or whatever. It is the translation of the divine name. If I might say it reverently, Yahweh. That's the name. What does it mean? What is God saying about who he is when he says, I am who I am? And and listen, listen, you start digging into this stuff and you just realize this is an unbelievable realm of unresolved thinking. There is probably no phrase that has been more debated among both Christian and Jewish scholars for centuries than the meaning of, I am who I am. Which actually tells us something, doesn't it? Why is there so much debate about what this means? Why is it so unexplainable? It's because God, to a great degree, is unexplainable. He is mystery. Whenever we attempt to look into his nature, there is going to be mystery. There is no name, there's no name in human vocabulary that could ever capture the full essence of all that God is. And so that's part of its meaning and significance. Implicit in God's name is this transcendence, this incomprehensibility, this incontainability, this uncontrollability. In spite of that, nevertheless, there are some undebatable truths that theologians have identified. And there are several, but I'll just mention a couple. As as facets of of God's nature in God's name. For example, God is eternal. God is unchanging in His nature. I am who I am. The everlasting, eternal God. I am who I am, not who I was. Our God is the one who always is. In verse 15, God says, This is my name forever. God has no beginning. God has no ending. And this is significant for us, loved ones, isn't it? Are you worried about your future? God is there. Are you worried or regretful or bitter or stuck on account of things in your past? God is there. Friends, even the things you, like you've moved on from... God has not moved on from. They're still before Him, and He rules over them, and He reigns over them, and their outcomes and their consequences. God is above and outside of time. He is not like us. We're, I'm wasting away. He's not. We are so caught up in the moment, and God is not, because God is eternal. God's also independent. There's a lot of different ways to say this. I mean, he's self-sufficient. He is not contingent. He just is. He's not tied to a moment. He's not tied to a place. He exists apart from and despite anything and everything else. Yeah, He's a fire that does not need a bush for fuel. Nothing can limit him. Nothing can hinder him. Nothing and no one can oppose him or thwart his purposes, no one can succeed against him." With the help of a technical commentary, I noticed something that I had not seen before that I think is helpful to you. In verse 12, the word word that is translated I will be. It's a a future tense. It's a promise. I will be. That is the same exact word and verb form in verse 14 that says, I am. I will be and I am. It's a repetition. And why is that significant? Because the one who promises to be with his people, with a people that he chooses, is the very God whose actual nature is to be present with a people he chooses. Or let me say it another way. God's very name is a promise of his dynamic presence with his people and his active power For his people, God's promise and God's name, they offer a double assurance to Moses and a double assurance to God's people. And it forever reminds us of God's action on our behalf. It's his promise and his nature. That's why verse 15 says, thus, I am to be remembered. This way, throughout all generations. So, what, what's in God's name? Loved ones, God's name is a promise to us of fellowship, and to, a promise of care, a promise of rescue, a promise of support, a promise of hope, of final rest, enjoying His presence forever. For... And, And and here's what I think is astonishing. For all the riches of this promise of God's presence and power, it will never exhaust the meaning of his name. There's always going to be more. Throughout the rest of the Bible, God will continue to unfold the meaning and the significance of His name until what He revealed in part just to Moses and then to Israel, He will reveal in fullness in the person of Jesus Christ. In the coming of Jesus Christ, the name of God will reach its full expression. In his incarnation, Jesus revealed the fullness of God's promise to be with his people. The word becomes flesh and dwells among us. Emmanuel, God with us. That's why Jesus says over and over things like, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life. Over and over, he means for us to hear, I am is with you. And in John chapter 8, I mean, he just completely blows all the fog away, <laughs> making this just incredible claim. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Loved ones, Jesus came to earth, lived a perfect life, and he died. N- not to free us from human slavery, but to free us from bondage to sinning and dying. And in his resurrection, he leads All of God's people, people from every tongue and tribe and nation and language in a second exodus out of sin and into life and into forgiveness and into the eternal pleasure of God's presence forevermore. And this is why God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus is who? Lord. Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. There's no other name by which we might be delivered. There's no other name by which we might be rescued. There's no other name by which we might be saved. And if you have called on the name of the Lord Jesus, if you have trusted In this name, the name of Jesus, who is, this is who God is for you, forever. if you have not yet called on his name, turn to him now. Call upon him in the trouble of your guilt and heartache and regret and brokenness and enslavement to sinning. He will save you. He will be with you. There is no other like Him. Whatever else, whoever else you have trusted and relied upon to deliver you, to satisfy you, our Lord Jesus is better. He is better so we we turn to you lord jesus in our weakness and we entrust ourselves to you let's stand together